Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is the first for me, anyway. Uh, this is very interesting times we're living in. Uh, but as you know, uh, last month, or no, last week, or the week before, we recently celebrated our seventh uh, anniversary as a church. And every year at this time, we uh, do a series of uh, our culture, who we are as a church, and what we believe. And so we're going to begin this week with um, our first in the series, We Are People Saved by Grace. So first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that we have your word. We can look and see what you say us. In the name of Jesus, open our understanding and open our hearts and our minds. Our minds and hearts are open. We want to receive from you this morning in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we want to look at the culture of who we are. Can you um, give me that bottle of We are what we believe. We believe we are a people saved by grace. So as an introduction, I want to, first of all, look at the definition of a culture, because it's relevant to um, the kingdom of heaven and, and the gospel. Uh, the most important question in life is, are you saved? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Because in light of this coronavirus, if you should happen to pass away, guess what? You are going to be in the presence of God, whether you believe it or not, you're going to be there. So uh, it helps to know that ahead of time, where are you going to stand with God? Jesus came to this earth to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth so that you and I can have a relationship with the living God who loves us and cares about us. So beginning with a culture is uh, defined as a verb. To, it's the cultivation of plants and animals, especially with a view to the improvement of the breed or stock. That's very important about culture because, theoretically anyway, and hopefully, uh, culture or civilization is improving as we go through history, uh, hopefully. It's pretty obvious that it's not always. It's also defined, culture is defined as the training, development, and refinement of the mind, the morals, and taste. It's supposed to produce condition of refinement or enlightenment. Now keep that word enlightenment in the back of your mind because we're going to look at that in a little bit here. It's also a specific stage or period in the development of a civilization. Anthropology. Anthropologically speaking, culture or outculture is the sum total of the attainments and learned behavior of any specific period, race, or people group regarded as expressing a traditional way of life subject to gradual but continuous modification by succeeding generations. In other words, uh, as a I don't remember the Greek philosopher's name, but he's uh, famous for just a few sayings. And one of his sayings, um, we lived in Ephesus, 
uh, one of his famous sayings was, the only constant is change. And it's become a law of physics, the only constant in the universe. The only thing you can really count on as far as the laws of physics go is that everything in the universe is continually changing or modifying. So hopefully for culture, the culture or the people groups are continually modifying and changing for the better as a succeeding generation that we understand. And you can see, obviously, that's not always the case. It's refinement. I was reading this morning, uh, uh, if you know who George Whitefield was, he was a famous preacher in the uh, uh, 1700s. And uh, there were two brothers uh, at Cambridge that he uh, was familiar with. And uh, one brother got saved and went to be a missionary to the Indians uh, in uh, the colonies of America in Georgia. The other brother, and they were, both came from wealthy families. The other brother was very, you know, upstanding, moral man, uh, very fine, uh, refined gentleman. Uh, but this refined gentleman was not saved, and uh, he graciously tried to disprove the gospel and everything, and eventually he got saved and totally turned around and devoted his rest of his life and wealth to spreading the gospel. Uh, Jesus came saying, Behold and repent, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you, that has been brought near to you. It's right here. It's something you and I can experience. <clears throat> the funny thing, I read an article in uh, uh, the uh, Wired magazine back in April of 2019, uh, the author of an article, Virginia Heffernan, uh, claims that Facebook is considered or referred to as a civilization, a culture. I kind of find that amusing because, uh, uh, you know, everyone's connected and I guess there's certain protocols to how you do stuff on Facebook and all that. But be that as it may, I have a one-year devotional, one-year walk with God devotional by Chris Hagin. And uh, April 17th, uh, Reading, he says that we've been brought into a spiritual kingdom, and so we must learn of its culture. He said something, something very interesting to me. You cannot expect to prosper in another, another country or culture without learning something of its customs and speaking its language. The kingdom of heaven has a language and a culture. The uh, Interesting thing about the Enlightenment I wanted to bring out is that in the uh, Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, the Black Death, the plague ruled Europe and it brought about uh, devastation and, and is a horrible time in history of human life. But after the Dark Ages came the Renaissance, and around the year 1350 to 1550 or 1400 to 1600 or so, religion still had a major impact, a major influence on culture and life during the Renaissance. Um, however, during the 1500s and after the Dark Ages, Interest in pre-Christian Greek and Roman culture revived, and it launched the Renaissance. 
In the early part of the 1500s, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. He just wanted to try and change the culture. However, he was brought to trial, and on April 18, 1521, he gave his defense, saying that my conscience is captive to the word of God, and that if you cannot convince me by scripture that I'm wrong, I will follow scripture. And as you know, he launched the uh, Protestant uh, uh, revolution, if you will, and uh, changed the culture of Europe. After the Renaissance came the Age of Reason, or the Age of the Enlightenment. And unfortunately, the Enlightenment gave us science, which is kind of wonderful, very good. Modern ethics, which isn't so very good. The arts, the liberal democracy, it also gave us the French Revolution, the reign of terror, where the guillotine was invented, the American Revolution, Napoleon, and humanism. So culture, by definition, is belief and behavior. What you believe will mold and shape and influence your behavior. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says these words, Yet who knows whether you have been brought into the kingdom for such a time as this. We're living in interesting times. Beloved, who knows, after September 11, 2001, life has not been the same. Who knows? I don't know with any certainty if after this coronavirus pandemic is over, hopefully it will be over, that life will be back to normal again or if it changes everything. Something to keep in mind. So there's three points I want to make this morning. There is a kingdom. It has a king. And there is a way to become part of that kingdom. So let's begin with that scripture. Oops. Oh, can you hear me now? Wrong way. Okay. Hallelujah. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hopefully you have your Bibles with you. Very clearly, Amos the prophet in the Old Testament, speaking for the Lord, says in chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of God. Dearly beloved, memorize the scriptures. Read it daily. Put it in your heart and let it become part of your life. There is a kingdom. Therefore, let us be grateful. In the King James, it says, let us have grace. For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The King James uses the word fear instead of awe. And it doesn't mean you're supposed to be afraid of God, but you're supposed to stand in awe of God. Glory to God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel is brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he had had a dream that disturbed him greatly of a great statue. And Daniel describes this statue and he tells him this statue is different materials because of different kingdoms. And the last kingdom that will be on the earth is the feet. It's a mixture of ceramic, clay, and iron. 
and they don't really adhere to one another. And the great big rock comes and smashes it, grinds up the powder, it's gone. And he tells the king that God will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. God will set up a kingdom, his kingdom, which will never be destroyed. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it says, The government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government, of kingdom and peace, there shall be no end. Hallelujah. Thank God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of peace. It's been given to us. Jesus brought it here to the earth so that we could taste and see that the Lord is good. Hallelujah. There is a kingdom. Glory to God. Psalm 10, verse 16. This kingdom has a king. And the king is the Lord. He is king forever and ever, ever, and the nations perish from his land. The main one I want to look at there, the main point is that the Lord is king forever and ever. You have your Bible with you, or if you're taking notes, Psalm 24, verse 7 through 8 says, Lift up your heads, O you gates, with an exclamation point. And be lifted up to everlasting doors, and the King of Glory shall come in. Verse 8 asks the question, who is this King of Glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This is the word Jehovah, or the self-existent eternal God, the Lord, the Jewish national name for God. And let me know that God has fought a battle for us, and we've won. Jesus came out of the grave. We just celebrated Passover and Easter. Jesus came out of the grave, the firstborn from the dead. Hallelujah. We have a hope of eternal life because of that. Psalm 44, verse 4 says, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Psalm 47, verse 1 through 2 says, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God. This has an exclamation point with a voice of triumph. When you've been to a football game or a, any sporting event and the, your team scores and uh, everyone goes wild. Ah! Or you've uh, watched uh, these uh, MMA fighters and one guy, he wins and he, ah! he runs around. He shouts with a voice of triumph and victory. God himself has given us Victory over sin. Hallelujah. Verse 7 of Psalm 47. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Anybody ever had a song sung specifically to them? I know on Valentine's Day, Pastor Wayne sang a song to his wife. It was very beautiful. But no one's ever sung about me. You know, but God wants us to sing about him. In Psalm 74, verse 12, a psalm of contemplation of Asaph, he says, For God is my king from of old, 
working salvation in the midst of the earth. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi came from Persia, the east, and they asked, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For they had seen the sign in the east, and they had heard of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Hallelujah. They knew. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus is the triumphant entry to Jerusalem. With the old king, lowly and humble, and riding on the colt of a donkey. First Timothy chapter six verse fifteen says, "He who is blessed, be blessed, and always sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords." Talking about Jesus. In Revelation chapter seventeen verse fourteen, it says that the Lamb who makes war against the enemy is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, John sees him on a horse, and he has a, on his robe and on his thigh a name written, all in capital letters, King of kings and Lord of lords. We don't really know in this country what a Lord is. We, we elect our officials, and some are appointed, but we have no clue what a Lord is. Someone who gets to tell everybody what to do. We like to think we're the lords of our own lives. No one tells me what to do. Well, your boss does. There is a kingdom. There is a king. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, about this kingdom, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. And not our own righteousness, because Isaiah says all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but God's righteousness. Not a matter of eating or drinking, but it's a matter of righteousness and peace. We can have peace with God. You don't have to be afraid of God. You can be in awe of God, but you have to fear God and joy in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I need some joy. There's times in my life where it's like, man, this is rough. I need some help. This, uh, sometimes I get depressed. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get depressed. I need joy. Hallelujah. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. There is a king. There is a kingdom. So that brings us to how do we enter? How do you get into this kingdom? Is joining? Is, is everyone saved? You know, this, God loves everyone, but does everyone love God? Well, you know, I remember when I asked one guy, he said, well, how do you think you're going to get to heaven? Why would God let you in heaven? Why would God let me in heaven? The funny thing, or not the funny thing is that Sad thing is, a lot of people think that God's going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds, and if you have enough good deeds, it's going to outweigh your bad deeds. Really? Well, I mean, it's only a little sin. Well, there's, what, 7 billion people on earth? <laughs> there's 7 billion little sins that add up to a lot. God is not indifferent to sin. God cares about sin because it ruins people's lives. It destroys people families. It causes people 
to do terrible things. But God says that his kingdom is available. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. In Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus, he, uh, he sitting there with the disciples, and uh, the stories were counted in uh, Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, and some folks bring some little kids to Jesus and want Jesus to bless them, pray for them. And uh, the disciples get all huffy and puffy. This is not have anything to do with the kingdom of God. These kids can't understand the thing. They're not smart enough to know anything about the kingdom of God. But if you know anything about the kingdom of God, four-year-olds can understand it. I remember reading uh, uh, about a young man who actually grew up and uh, became a, a, a very intelligent uh, theologian. I can't remember his name offhand. His grandfather was very famous uh, here in the original 13 colonies. Four years old, he was late for dinner, and they found him out preaching to a bunch of Native Americans. Four years old, and he already knew, and he could understand how the kingdom of heaven works. And Jesus said, Jesus, in one of the Gospels, it says he became indignant, he got mad at the disciples. You know, he says, don't forbid the kids to come to me, because Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I'm telling you the truth. Listen up, this is very important. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So, does that mean we gotta like, um, you know, become less uh, mature? What do we do? It's talking about the innocence. There is a certain aspect of small children. And innocence that they have, they're trusting, you can tell them anything and they'll believe you up to a certain point, but they are accepting. There's a cute little video I think it was on YouTube, somewhere made it viral on the internet. This little, uh, two little boys uh, hadn't seen each other in a while, and, and uh, the dads were out, and uh, Kind of funny that one boy's black and one boy's white. They come running down the street and they hug each other. Oh, it's so good to see you. You know, like three or four years old. They have that innocence. Praise God. However, <clears throat> and this is a big however, like I asked earlier, why would God let any one of us into the kingdom of heaven? Why would God allow us? Because in Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6, it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? God is holy, and we're not. Why, why, why would God have anything to do with us? Most of us, by the time we're teenagers, we've done some awful stuff. Things I don't know about you, there's things I don't want anybody to know that I've done. Think about this. Jesus paid the price for the worst thing you or I have ever done. Think about the worst thing you've done. 
And Jesus paid the price for you to be and I to be forgiven of that and have it wiped away. That to me is awesome. The answer to who, is, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord in verse 4 of Psalm 24 it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, never told a lie. I don't know about you, but there's times, you know, everyone, one time or another, has done something that is not right. However, the one person or the individual person that can ascend God's holy hill and stand in his holy place will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. And this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek God's face. God wants to bless us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21, it says these amazing words. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we can be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Sin is so awful, so bad, that all the sin of the whole world was placed on Jesus and God turned away. All of the sin that ever, 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 past, present, future, was placed on Jesus. The horribleness of every murder, every lie, every, everything placed on Jesus and God looked away. In order for us to receive God's righteousness, so when you receive Jesus, God doesn't see the old you. God doesn't see the worthless stuff that you do or did. God sees Jesus and his righteousness. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. There is only one God and only one mediator between God and man or mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. You get the righteousness of God by putting your trust in that what Jesus did on the cross is more than enough to make you and I good enough to come into God's presence and have a relationship with Him. It all hinges on your believing. For it says there's no difference in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everyone's a sinner until you get saved. Verse 24, we are justified freely by His grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's also God's help. Mercy. Hang on a second. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is getting, is not getting what we do deserve. Grace and mercy. Paul writes uh, some of his letters and introductions. He always says peace and grace. Peace, grace and mercy in some of the letters. We're justified 
and made right with God freely, it's a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Cannot find salvation anywhere else except in Jesus. Because, verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Somebody had to pay. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of whoever has faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. God shows or demonstrates or proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we now have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God is not unjust to pour out his wrath. It's his prerogative, vengeance is mine, and saith God. But we have been saved from the wrath of God because the wrath of God that we deserve was put on Jesus on the cross. Read Isaiah chapter 53. As it says there in Isaiah chapter 53, that he, verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. There's a psalm that says that on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. That doesn't mean that God is not going to pour out his wrath on unbelievers. He will. Read Revelation. That's why we're studying it. Much more. Hallelujah. Thing is that God wants to have a relationship with us, but sins in the way of most people, those who aren't saved. God promises in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22, that I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions, and like a cloud your sins. And therefore he said, Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In chapter 45, verse 22, Jesus or God says, Look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Glory to God. God wants to have a relationship with us. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 5, he has a revelation from God. We need to be saved. Everyone needs to be saved. Hallelujah. Now, grace, or being saved, is a Greek word, sozo. It means the spiritual and eternal salvation granted immediately by God to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Literally means to be made whole. Salvation is the spiritual and eternal deliverance granted immediately by God to those who accept his conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus upon confession with your mouth of Jesus as Lord. It's the power of God to deliver from the bondage of sin and change your life. Hallelujah. Before I accepted Christ, I was a mess. I'm not perfect yet. There's still things I'm dealing with, God's still working in my life, but I do not do 
stuff I used to do because I'm saved, because I've been set free. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, it says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And this grace, the, the Greek word for grace is charis, where we get the word charisma from. And it's the friendly disposition from which the kindly act Proceeds graciousness or the loving kindness, goodwill generally bestowed by God. And there's a stress on the freeness and universality of it, its spontaneous character, and the pleasure or joy God designs for the recipient. But it's set in contrast with death. It's a free gift, God's grace, God's salvation. Let me read that definition again from Vine's Expository Dictionary. There is a stress or emphasis on the freeness and universality. It's available to everyone. It's spontaneous character. You can get saved in an instant of time, in a moment. God will reveal himself to you if you ask him. And God has designed pleasure or joy for us when we receive it. It's getting what we don't deserve. Hallelujah. How do you get saved? Acts chapter 16, verses 30 through 31. The Philippian jailer. There's an earthquake. Paul and Silas get beat. They put in the innermost prison. And instead of whining and crying, they're in there praising God and singing hymns. And I can imagine you know that. The acoustics were great. Everyone could hear them, even the jailer. And uh, about midnight, it says an earthquake happens. And the most unusual thing happens. All the bars of the doors, the gates are open. Everyone's cell is open, and everyone's chains fall off, and no one escapes. <laughs> Can you imagine? A prison full of criminals, and none of them escape. And the jailer's his life's in danger because if anyone had escaped, he'd get the death penalty. So he's going to kill himself just to make sure. And Paul somehow knows this and yells out, Don't hurt yourself, we're all here. And he brings a light and says, First thing he says is, How do you know that? No. First thing he says is, Gentlemen, sirs, how do I get saved? <laughs> you must have heard Paul and Silas praising God. And he understood, I'm not saved. I need to get saved. I was about to send myself into an eternity without God. And Paul simply tells him, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. This is just, there uh, it is. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's the king, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is it so important to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Because it proves that Jesus paid the price for everyone's sin. It proves that his sacrifice was unquestionably successful, more than enough to make you and I good enough to come into a relationship with God. 
raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And with the heart, you believe, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, you confess and you say, Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess him before the Father and the Holy Spirit in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny them also. In verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes from Joel in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 32. God makes it so simple. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All on Jesus. Jesus saved me. So as I, I know somebody said, you know, they're being led into a fancy prayer, and, and in their heart, in their mind, they're saying, okay, God, if you're real, show me. But the next morning they woke up, and God had revealed that he's really real, that Jesus is Lord, he's the King of Kings. Hallelujah. In Acts chapter 15, <clears throat> verse 11, they're having a conference in Jerusalem, pastor's conference, they all got together uh, because some guys had come up uh, to uh, another city and said, oh, you guys got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And uh, Peter had gone and uh, visited Cornelius, and that was against the law. But that touched their lives, touched some Gentiles. Peter gets up and he says, We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles. And he goes on to quote from Amos chapter 9, verse 12, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, said the Lord, who does all these things. So God makes it simple to enter into the kingdom. It's his grace. He's extended. He's made the way. Hallelujah. He's paid the price. <clears throat> you have to seek it, though. It's not automatic. Now, everyone's not just saved because Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. You have to receive Jesus. You have to understand his grace. He paid the price. Hallelujah. It's a gift. Now, last scripture this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. It says, Before by grace you have been saved through faith. So the grace is that God's extending his hand towards us, and we put our faith in it, we get saved. And it's not our own doing, it's a gift from God, and you can't work your way for it. You can't be good enough. God did it himself. He provided the lamb. <clears throat> Hallelujah. He provided the lamb. Look to me and be saved, Isaiah says, speaking for God, for the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Hallelujah. God wants to forgive but it's not automatic, like I said. You have to ask. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. It's not a matter of you being good enough. It's a matter of Jesus making you good enough. Hallelujah. With that, we're going to close in prayer this morning or today or whenever you're listening and watching this. If you are not saved and you know it, and God's dealing with you. Or maybe you were saved in your backstage. And God's dealing with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. God still loves you. 
always will love you. He proved it by having Jesus die a horrible death in our place, taking all the sins of the whole world upon himself. If you're watching and listening, and you have not received Jesus as your Savior, you have not asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Maybe you believe he rose from the dead, but you haven't asked him to be the Lord of your life. I just want to ask you this today. If you receive Jesus, do you accept him as your king? I urge you, it's the most important decision of your life. Because eternity depends upon you. So please, if you will, say this prayer with me. Jesus, I thank you that you took my place, took the punishment I deserve, so that I could be set free. Right now, I invite you to be the Lord of my life, to be the king of my life. Thank you for saving me, and I praise you. And I want to live you and love you for the rest of my days here on earth. Amen. If you pray that this morning, I want to encourage you to contact us at Living Hope Family Church, Milano. Hopefully, when this coronavirus uh, lets things get back somewhat to normal, we can uh, once again gather uh, together to worship God and uh, have fellowship and see each other face to face. I long to see everyone face to face.